Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode of Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Danielle Lucier on the show, and we'll be talking about a book that she co-authored with Mohammed Ayoub called The Many Faces of Political Islam, Religion and Politics in Muslim Societies. This had a first edition, and now there's a second edition because, well, things happen. <laughs> and, you, and you need to update things. And uh, Mohammed and Danielle have done that. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Marshall. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm an associate professor of political science here at Grinnell College. I joined the Grinnell faculty uh, in 2011 after finishing my PhD in political science at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, I am within the field of political science. I'm what's called a comparativist, which is a little bit of a, a misnomer because all politics involves the study of comparison. We're all comparing various things. But within political science, uh, this, the way that we think about our subfields is comparativists are individuals who focus primarily on the domestic politics of countries outside of the United States. And most comparativists have a geographic area of expertise. That, that's where they have done some a deep dive into understanding a country's historical and economic and social background, and maybe they've developed some language skills that they can be using to do that type of research. Uh, and my primary geographic region of expertise is Russia and the former communist world. Um, in fact, I was a Russianist before I was a political scientist. Really? I didn't know that. I'm yeah. a Russianist. Undergraduate yeah. Like degree, yeah. undergraduate degree was from a, a similar institution to Grinnell, Wesleyan University, and I was a Russian and East European studies major. Um, so it was my my love of Russia and my and my desire to understand Russian politics that ultimately led me into pursuing graduate study in political science. Um, however, within when when I was in graduate school, I developed a secondary geographic interest in Indonesia. It's unusual to have a comparativist look at two very distinct geographic regions, but that's that's how my intellectual interests have evolved, and and in part that is what united those two very different regions for me uh, was the primary, I would say, political questions that have motivated my research, which was an understanding, a, a really deep desire to understand why countries attempt to build democracies and why they either succeed or fail at that. And in particular, wanting to investigate the relationship between the population at large, the mass population, your average citizens, and the way that political institutions are formed and interact with the population. That's what has driven me to study. That's what drove me to really understand, being interested in understanding Russia uh, as, a, as an adolescent when the Soviet Union was dissolving. And when I was in graduate school, understanding Indonesia that had just been going through a period of, of major upheaval after the um, end of the Suharto regime at the end of the, of the 20th century. Uh, and within that broader study of trying to understand democracies and when you get them and when you don't get them, that has over the years led me to pursue a variety of different research questions that I think relate to it. One of them being in recent years, a closer focus on the relationship between religion and politics. 
Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, it is always interesting to me how you start one place in academia and you always end up at another. That's yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you had told me when I was in graduate school that, it, it, and I would say this, you know, if you had told me when I was in graduate school that within a decade of, of finishing my graduate studies, I would have been the co-author of a book called The Many Faces of Political Islam, I would have thought that was very strange. That would have not been necessarily the direction I saw myself going. Yeah, I, I say something similar. I mean, I run a podcast network now. I was a professor of Russian history. If you would have asked me 15 years ago if I'd be running a podcast network, I would have laughed at you. I would have said, what's a podcast network? <laughs> <laughs> so could you tell us what you and Mohammed wanted to accomplish with this book? What was its goal? Sure. So um I think this, the origin story of this book is actually pretty interesting. Uh, so I, um, the, as you mentioned, this is the second edition. The first edition was published in 2008, and that was a that was a single doc, single author publication. So it was Muhammad Ayub's uh, solo authored work, and that original book was was attempting to do something, uh, was was attempting to fulfill, I would say, a a need within scholarship at that time. There was no good introductory level text on political Islam. Everything was written for a specialist audience. Uh, and at the same time, this was a period where I would say there was a very broad hunger among students and the, the broader population to understand a little bit more about this. And there was a need, really. I, th I think especially when you looked at where U.S. foreign policy was, there was a need for a greater understanding about the relationship between Islam and politics and outside of U.S. borders. And so he had written that book at that time with a goal of, of filling that need. And, and it was an excellent book. It, it um, was very well received. It was written in a very com contemporaneous style. Um, I first started to, I became acquainted with the book when I, around the time that I was finishing up my degree and joined the Grinnell faculty um, because one of the courses that I was designing that I created when I came to Grinnell was a seminar on Islam and politics. And uh, it was a book that I acquired to teach in my class. And it was an excellent book. Uh, my students loved it. I loved teaching it. It was rich in terms of offering a uh, nuanced theoretical picture for us to sort of understand what I think is a very complex topic uh, that covers a lot of different countries that had these really well-rounded case studies that students could uh, sink their teeth into and understand and debate. Uh, and, and I love teaching this book and my students really love learning it. But a lot happened um, between the time when that book was published in 2008 and even when I began teaching it, the first time I taught that class was in spring of 2012. Uh, a number of really important events had happened that shape at least uh, our own the questions we have about Islam and politics. So, for example, um, Osama bin Laden had been killed. <laughs> um, there had been this series of Arab uprisings across the Middle East and North Africa in 2010 and 2011 that had led to meaningful regime change in many cases resulting in civil war. You had had a decline in Al-Qaeda following the death of Osama bin Laden and the rise of a new uh, violent Islamist entity known as the Islamic State or ISIS. So th these are just a, a small sampling of the types of events that had taken place in the period between when this first edition was published and more recent time. And I had been 
teaching this book and continuing to feel as though my, you know, my students would say, I really like this book, but well, what about this? What about that? And, you know, I, I started to feel as though the texts were a bit outdated. And I had searched for a long time for something that would be an adequate replacement uh, and was frustrated. I didn't really find anything. Um, and so I had decided one year that I said, well, you know what? This is what our, it's a research seminar. It's uh, mostly third and fourth year students who take it. And this is what our big research project is going to be. We're going to read this book with the eye, I, with the eye of updating it. We're going to read it as a critical and that we're going to take a critical lens to it. We're going to identify what things have changed, what need to be updated. The students would do research projects on it. And that would be sort of what our research focus for the semester was. So I'd, I'd made up my mind to do this. And I contacted Muhammad Ayub and said, oh, I'm, I'm doing this with my students. Uh, this is pre-COVID. You know, would, would you be interested in maybe joining us for a, a, a Skype session when they right. get towards the end of the semester? Exactly. And, you know, so I, I, I reached out to him about that. And I said, you know, by the way, have you ever thought about publishing a second edition of this book? I, I'm hungry for it. My students would love it. And uh, he wrote back, he said, you know, University of um, Michigan Press has been asking me for years to write a second edition of this book, but I have, I just don't have the capacity. I've been pulled in a lot of other different directions. Uh, do you want to co-author it with me? Wow. That's great. <laughs> that is just great. Well, it's great and it's bad because now <laughs> you have to write a book. Well, it was funny because it came out of nowhere. It yeah. wasn't on the li- it wasn't on my to do list. Um, right. And and you know, I gave it some thought, and we had a lot of correspondence back and forth about what that would look like. And I decided to go ahead and do it. Um, and primarily, I because I I agreed with my initial assessment, which is that this is a fantastic book, and it's dated, and that with some updates, it would really continue to contribute to, I think, a very important conversation that needs to be happening, not just among scholars, but among the the broader population. That is a great origin story. And uh, Mohab's generosity uh, deserves to be acknowledged. That's very, that's, it's unusual and very nice. (laughs) Yeah, without a doubt. It was unusual and very nice. And really wonderful collaboration. um, Because we, we were not individuals who had a had a relationship going into this, right. which I think was also a bit unusual. Um, so it was a very generous offer on his on his part to bring me in on this project. It it showed a lot of trust. Yes, um, it did. And uh, and at this and it was a wonderful opportunity because as we were working out what this would look like, I, I had to acknowledge and say, "Hey, I'm I'm a specialist on Indonesia. Uh, I am not a specialist on there are certain topics in this book and certain areas in this book that stretch me and are beyond my capacity. Uh, and so we had to work through what that would look like. Um, and I was very pleased with, with where we landed, which was, uh, I would say his, he approved everything that I, you know, I would put out ideas and he would approve things and, um, would offer really valuable suggestions offer sources. And, you know, we worked on everything to on everything together. And he was open to every single suggestion that I made, every single recommendation. And so in the end, I feel as though this book really is, it's ours. Um, it has his very strong imprint in his areas of expertise. And I think it has the updates that we both desired. Um, and I think it also speaks to my own scholarly interests and contributions in terms of thinking about democratization, thinking about the relationship between societies at large and institutions at large. And even, I would say, one of the contributions that we make 
in the second edition is to actually elevate up, I think, the theoretical contributions and thinking about how we delve even further into thinking about political Islam as a concept and thinking about ways you can take that concept and the ideas that are introduced in this book and apply them more broadly. So apply them to cases that are not not exclusively the cases that are covered in the book. Yeah, this is an excellent segue to my first question, which is about definitions. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about three words or phrases. Uh, one is Islam. What's that? The second is political Islam. What's that? And then this very fraught phrase, which I confess I don't really understand, Islamism. Because, for example, we don't have a term Christianism. Like, that's not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you uh, just begin with Islam and then go to and build political it up Islam. From there. And, yeah. So, um, you know, when we think about Islam, we really are thinking about the religious devotion and belief system that Muslims profess. So individuals self-identify as Muslim. Their adherence to Islam include their five pillars uh, that individuals profess and practice. And that's a, when I, when I think about, gosh, even providing a definition of Islam, I'm weeding into I'm I'm wading myself into the territory of having to to define religion, right? Which is its own right. I would say fraught fraught um, conversation. But if if I you know I'm going to excuse myself a little bit to not go too deep in the weeds on that. But when we think about religion, we're we're thinking about a structure of beliefs and ritual practices that bring together humans with the divine. Yeah, and so. So Islam, as we, we think of as a as a religion that brings together individuals through beliefs and ritual practices with the divine, um, and that is professed by um, a very large segment of the population around the world that adhere to these five pillars. Um, and an important one is acknowledging uh, Muhammad as their prophet and the, mm-hmm. as their last prophet. Now, within that, of course, there is... A, a broad range of practices yes. um, and a broad range of beliefs and interpretations. Now, when we add that um, definition, political Islam, um, yeah. so the definition that we use uh, in the book, we borrow and build on a definition by uh, Guylain Deneu, which uh, defines political Islam, who defines political Islam as a form of instrumentalization of Islam by individuals groups, and organizations that pursue political objectives. So thinking about this use of religion and this these beliefs and devotional practices by either individuals or groups or organizations with the goal of engaging in some type of political struggle. So that's a very broad definition. Mm-hmm. That can encompass a lot of different types of activities, a lot of different types of actors. Now, when we think about that relationship between political Islam and your third definition, Islamism, you know, I would say if we if we go really far into the weeds, there are some scholars who make a distinction between these two words um, in terms of of details that I'm not going to go into. I would say the broader consensus among scholars who work in this tradition are to sort of see political Islam and Islamism as synonyms and the mm-hmm. sense of we can we can think of Islamism as a another noun to describe um, a theoretical approach 
that encompasses political Islam. If we take it and we change that to Islamist, we think about actors who are acting in favor of political Islam. And so if I then take that one step further and say, okay, Islamist versus Islamic, right? We think about these two different adjectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are important adjectives that I talk about a lot with my students, right? We use the, the adjective Islamic to refer really to those devotional practices, to talking about the religion Islam. Islamist is the adjective that we use to talk about, or the noun in, the, in this instance, for talking about an individual, um, the noun that we use to talk about political Islam. So the use of religion for to achieve political objectives, the instrumentalization mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- th- thank you for that. So I guess there probably could be a noun Christianism, but no, there's it just clangs off my ears. Uh, but maybe people in Baghdad or something are studying Christianism. Um, the, the the one thing that struck me about your book, just as a kind of lay person, is that the ways in which Islamic ideas and devotional practices have been applied to various sorts of, let's call them regimes, has been incredibly varied. Like yes, you, it's you very diverse. Just, you don't just end up with, and I could just, just to digress for a moment, one of the things that I kind of got from the noosphere or whatever it was, that there's something theocratic about Islam, that it doesn't like secular authority or that it takes over secular authority in a kind of one way sort of direction. I don't think this is correct, just looking at the map, because as you point out, there are Islamic democracies and Islamic autocracies, there are full-blown theocracies. So it's not like you get one kind of regime out of this thing, Islam. Maybe you can talk a, a little bit about that. Absolutely. And and the first chapter of the book, we do talk about um, myth, de- demolishing myths, right? And there's sort of three primary myths that we seek to demolish in this book. You know, the first one is the, is the idea that the intermingling of religion and politics is something that's unique to Islam. So you're right. We don't have this word about Christianism. We don't yeah. we don't have the vocabulary that gets at this. But I, I you know, it is this myth that is perpetuated, I think, by a lot of uh, the ways that we as just as Americans probably talk about the relationship between Islam and politics that that assumes that that there's this intermingling that's unique to Islam. And that's simply not true, right? Yeah. The inter- intermingling of religion and politics happens across all different religion types of uh, religious devotion. And in yeah, all different I'm, types, it, it happens in democracies, it happens in autocracies, right? So that's I'm, one. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry to interrupt. I'm reminded of the fact it's the Queen something Jubilee. I don't know. She's been on the throne exactly, forever. Exactly, right? The, the, the Queen of England is, and many people don't recognize this, the head of the Church of England. <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, even, and we, you know, we, we talk, we, we make the Pledge of Allegiance in the United States. We talk about one nation under God. I mean, it's, yeah. it's intermingled in, in, in all different types of instances, right? So that's one myth. The second myth, um, and this gets precisely to your question, is that political Islam is monolithic. Right. That that there's sort of one vision of what it looks like um, and that that vision is theocratic. And that's certainly not the case. Um, and the third myth that we are trying to demolish in this book is this idea that political Islam is inherently violent. And I think that stereotype of violence also is tied in with this view of theocracy. Right. This sense that political Islam inherently means the organization of a state around religious principles and that you will be that one will use violence as a tool to try to accomplish um, that end game. And, and those are myths. We don't really have actually any substantive basis to, to say that, that that any of those hold. Right. But I mean, if you just look at a map and even as a layperson, which I am, uh, the, the 
the, the regimes, if we can call them that, the political systems mm -hmm. of Indonesia, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Iran could hardly be different. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, more different than they are. More I, than I, they're, yeah, they're, I mean, they, yeah, they, they, they run the different. gamut. Yeah. <laughs> they run the gamut, right? They really, really do. And that's and that's one of the things that we write about in the book. So we, we start off talking with, or the first empirical chapter really puts... Saudi Arabia and Iran as a head-to-head -head comparison. Um, and we they're called the self-proclaimed Islamic states. They claim to be Islamic. Um, and yet we have to, th those are their claims. And we have to look at, well, what is it that that means? Um, I find that these two examples are really interesting ones to discuss because I think for many Americans, and at least, you know, I can say this for myself as somebody who grew up in, in the 1980s, right, in the United States, that if you gave me an image of what, what, it, you know, as an adolescent growing up in the United States, an image of a Muslim country, what did that look like? I did have an, I had an image of Saudi Arabia, right? And that is such a unique case. There's no other case in the world that looks like Saudi Arabia in terms of the way that religion and politics are intertwined. And then, uh, you know, the counterexample, of course, being Iran. Iran is a very unique case in that it is the, the only instance in the world where religious leaders have a role that basically plays the role of a veto player over the political system. Um, so that's also high, highly unique. Um, Iran is also the only Shia majority country in the world. So it's, it, it, it has a very distinct, it, it follows a very distinct um, subset within Islam that is not representative of the broader Muslim world. Yeah, the, the, the self-proclaiming aspect, and this leads me to something that I'm kind of interested in because it gets a lot of press, is that sometimes people will say that Islam is, is backward looking, that it looks to this a golden era, and you talk about this in the book of the caliphate when the Ummah was united somehow, and, and the idea that there maybe should be some return to this. Is this a, can you talk a little bit about that belief, how widely it's held or? So that's a great question. And my, my immediate response to this ties back to what we were talking about before, which is the distinction between Islam and political Islam. So when we think about political Islam as being the instrumentalization of Islam for political objectives, that's where we see, I would say, this um, focus on a, a golden age. And the way that I would describe this would be that Islamists, again, thinking about individuals who are using Islam to pursue political objectives, are reimagining and reappropriating aspects of the Islamic past in ways that essentially allow them to invent traditions and dehistoricize Islam for very particular objectives and gains to be obtained in the contemporary era. Uh, so to, to just flesh that out a little bit more, um, most for most of history, uh, there was a distinction between temporal rule and religious rule. Um, Muslim lands had, they had political rulers who were not necessarily religious rulers. Um, there was a, a different way of, of, organizing politics and religion than there are than there is now what has happened and what i think what ayub and i argue 
the contemporary manifestation of political Islam is responding to really has to do with political changes, geopolitical changes that came into being in the last several hundred years, namely the rise of European powers in the international arena that brought many regions that have had historically been populated by Muslims under colonial occupation and changing, sort of shifting the global concentration of power in terms of military power, economic power, commerce um, to Europe in a way that allowed the subjugation of populations that were Muslim. This happens, and as this also happens, we see a shift in the way that politics is organized globally toward the modern nation state, Mm -hmm. right? So there had, you know, for much of human history, we were not organized as nation states. For much of human history, we were organized as- Almost all of it. For almost all (laughs) of human history. So the the modern nation state is a very, it's a very um, recent phenomenon. Yeah. And that, but it, it's, it's a recent phenomenon and it's, but it's lasting and it, or at least it, it's certainly lasting and, and representative of our contemporary era in which we have territories that are marked off that have demarcated borders and a mutual recognition of rulers. Um, and that, that process of building the modern nation state on a global level was, was something that had, was reflects European dominance of a particular historical era mm-hmm. that the rest of the world has had to respond to and evolve with um, for better or worse. I, I, I put that out there as a neutral statement. And this, and I, that, should, I should add, sorry to interrupt. This is also true of Christianity because when nation states were first born, I mean, it's hard to pin it down, but in the 16th, 17th century, the idea of nation states did not sit well with, for example, the Catholic church. Because the Catholic Church is an international organization. It's an international religion. And if you ask Catholics, there's one kind of Christianity and that's it. And it doesn't sit well with nation states. Right. So, I mean, we're dealing with we're dealing with this broader concept that does intersect and divide up populations whose religious identities don't necessarily cut across right. or, or, or transcend borders. Um, but political Islam. Right. And this it is. I, going back to this idea of this golden age, it's reimagining that golden age to create um, a motivation to mobilize against much more recent and contemporary infringements um, and repression of Muslim peoples in terms of the the creation of nation nation states, European colonization, um, and any number of other factors that have contributed to political dissatisfaction in Muslim-majority countries. Yeah, I mean, th- this is all very interesting because it does kind of parallel the Christian development, but in 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 the in the uh, well in the Christian world, if we can call it that, Europe primarily in America. This all happened in the 16th and 17th century when the religious wars were fought, mm-hmm. and they were kind of fights over nation states. Like, is there going to be a nation state? You know, who's going to appoint bishops, so on and so forth. And 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 Christianity being an international religion. I mean, even saying that is kind of strange because it's it's just a religion. Um, it's not just a religion; it's a religion that transcends national borders, and it, it it even to this day doesn't really sit very well with the kind of broader Christian idea of Christian universalism. 
Right. You would have national churches, like the queen, the head of the Anglican church. What's that about? Like, how are English Christians different than Italian Christians or different from, I don't know, Chinese Christians? Um, so you, you get this tension is 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 not specific to Islam in, in any way. Right. Yeah, maybe you could talk a, a little bit about the way in, in which, well, let me ask you this kind of odd question. That, that occasionally, you, you, well, again, I'm such an ignoramus about these things. There have been various attempts to kind of reunite or create a caliphate that it, it, it is a transnational entity. I'm thinking of the Ottoman Empire, for example, or Pan-Arabism, which was a big thing uh, and not so much anymore. And is this another iteration of that desire to unite the Ummah? And... So that's a great question. And my response to that has to do, I would say, that we is that this is where we see such variety, right? It's not a single way of responding to these changes, right? There are a variety of different patterns that political Islam takes. And some of them actually take are in response to precisely these types of, of um, trends that you, you've observed. So, for example, one of the, in the book, we describe four what we call ideal types of different Islamic actors or manifestations of, of political Islam. And I use that word ideal type in the, in the way that Max Weber, um, the social theorist, used it which is that we see these as crystallizations of particular characteristics that come together and that, in, you know, in real life, we're never going to find the ideal, the pure example of how these different characteristics come together. But they provide a template for us to look at and say, we can look at different manifestations of the world around us, the positive world around us, and say this is closer to one or another ideal type. And within that, we identify four different ideal types of, of political Islam. And um, to just talk about one or two of them, because I think that this helps to answer your question, you know, one of the ideal types we talk about are national liberation movements, so um, national resistance movements. So these are examples of instances where you have groups that are seeking to basically develop a sense of nationhood and protect a territory on which they see their nation living um, and using Islam and that religious identity as a tool to help inspire and organize and defend and make the claim for why they should be able to have that territory and defend that territory. And that's a particular type of political Islam that's really quite distinct from sort of the recreation of a caliphate. Now, we think about that recreation of a of a caliphate. Um, you know, there are that is in and of itself a an impossibility within the existing international system if you accept the legitimacy of the internet of the existing international system. So um, we identify Islamist national resistance groups. So those who are they, they accept the legitimacy of temporal rule. They don't see the need for the recreation of a, of a broader uh, caliphate. Um, they accept the overall contours of the international system, but they're, they're instrumentaling, uh, instrumentalizing Islam for political gain by, by drawing on that Islamic identity. Now, that's distinct from 
a group of actors that we call violent transnational actors. And violent transnational actors comprise a very, very small number of Islamist actors in the world. Their objectives really are to restructure the contours of the international system, to nullify existing nation state structures, to do away with the liberalist international order, by which I mean an international order governed by uh, entities such as the United Nations or the World Trade Organization, um, et cetera, and to construct a political identity that's based on religious rule. Um, but that's a very small number of actors. I mean, we're really talking about Al-Qaeda and ISIS and a few other smaller actors. Um, that's not the bulk of Islamist actors. The bulk of Islamist actors fall into another type of, of, of entity. So either, you know, the Islamist national resistance groups that I talked about, a lot of Islamist actors um, accept the existing nation state structures and are using political Islam to try to respond to more domestic concerns. So you mentioned, for example, pan-Arabism earlier. Um, one of the trends that we see is a use of um, Islamist organization and rhetoric in countries where pan-Arabism led to political structures that were largely authoritarian and non-representative, that Islam is being used actually to organize opposition to mm-hmm secular authoritarian leaders. Well, this was the case in Iran, actually. If I'm yes. Not, yes. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 And then there was a fourth, I think. I don't know. I, I kind of yeah, lost track. So, yes. Right. So if, if I'm talking about my, our four ideal types, so I yeah. mentioned the violent transnationalist Islam, the Islamist nationalist resistance groups, and we talked about nonviolent political parties. Um, so thinking about nonviolent political parties, just to add a little bit more onto that, th- they have the opportunity to engage in peaceful types of political organization because they're in political regimes that are including them. Mm-hmm. Um, not all political regimes are going to be inclusive of Islamist actors. They may deny them opportunities to be engaged politically. Our fourth um, ideal type that we write about are what we call vanguard uh, Islamist movements. Um, and that's using, and you'll appreciate this as a Russian historian, it's using vanguard very much in the spirit of Vladimir Lenin's vanguard party. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Lenin as a an interpreter of Karl Marx, viewed the the need for a cadre of professional revolutionaries to help raise the political consciousness of the masses. Right, that he saw that you were not going to have a a communist revolution absence this this vanguard party. And so we take that concept of of the vanguard party to um, think about the this particular type of Islamist movements that reject the legitimacy legitimacy of the existing state structure and focus on revolution, but within a, a territorial territorially circumscribed area. So not trying to rebuild a caliphate, but really thinking about revolution within a, a very specific territorial area. Um, and that what distinguishes these uh, vanguard Islamist movements from some of the other groups that I've talked about is very much this focus a belief on the ends justifying the means. So a willingness to use violence to build this, this future-oriented um, political system, but also with an awareness that revolution can't be sustained indefinitely. So vanguard Islamist movements are, I would say they're, they're not 
ever they're they're never in an end state, right? You'll have a group that will be this vanguard Islamist movement for a period of time, and then will ultimately transition into something something else. Um, mm-hmm. In some cases, they might transition into a nonviolent political party. Um, other cases, perhaps into a national resistance movement or, or something else altogether. So one of the things that's really significant about thinking about these different ideal types is that they're really dependent on the type of political regime where an entity is operating. Is that regime open enough for opposition to take on a form that's instrumentalizing Islam in a way that's peaceful? Are peaceful tactics even an option? Um, Or is organization political organization centered around Islam so marginalized within a very repressive system that the only way it can take form would be through violent tactics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, That's very interesting. I want to shift just a little bit. And I wondered if you could discuss what I might call uh, apolitical Islam, because I, I mean, I, I know Muslims in the United States. Some of them are hosts on the New Books Network. You have them all the time. And they, they don't seem particularly political. And they seem to have acquiesced, or I don't know if that's the right word, but they seem to accept the, the way we do things in the United States. And I'll speak here as a parochial American. That they don't seem political at all. That right. They, <laughs> so, I mean, again, this this I tie this back to the, the way we conceptualize and define political Islam, which really is the instrumentalization of yeah. Islam for political purposes. So... Islam at, at its forefront is, is a religion. And you have any number of people who, who practice their religious beliefs or hold their religious beliefs and do not intersect them with their political beliefs. That these are, that, or, or, or one might say, and this is something my students and I study um, extensively in my seminar on Islam and politics, to what extent do religious beliefs shape political actions? And, and that's something I would say is, is studied more at the individual level. Um, when we're talking about political Islam and and the focus that we're looking at in this particular book, we're really looking at organizations and actors whose entire method of attempting political engagement is through the instrumentalization of of religious beliefs. Yeah, and this so, leads me back, yeah, to, to yeah. kind of a you know what what springs to mind there is uh, Judaism in the 19th century. I, I don't know how political it was, to be honest with you. But there was a sector of the Jewish community, namely Zionists, who were very interested in instrumentalizing Judaism for political purposes. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I, something I just want to be very clear about is, is you know, at, there is no claim made anywhere in this book. And, and I would and I, and I would say there's no, nothing empirically to support such a claim, even though I think there may be a stereotype or an assumption out there um, that. Muslims' political activity inherently stems from their religious beliefs. Yeah, that doesn't so, seem to I make sense. I mean, any, most, uh, most, most, most of Islam is apolitical, um, and that's not something we're really exploring in, in this book. Yeah, the reason I mentioned is because, the, you know, if you do read the press and you listen to talking heads and bloviators and pundits, you do sometimes get this line that if you are a Muslim, then you will hew to these kinds of political values and have this particular political program which always seemed to me to be just wacky from the point of view of everyday Muslim life, which is about the five pillars and essentially observing the religion. Well, and and it's what's really interesting in hearing you talk about that is when we do, we see examples of 
of political Islam, again, if we go back to the examples of the nonviolent um, political parties, where you can have a country, and Indonesia is a great example, where you have multiple political parties making claims about political organization and how the state should be organized and what types of policies are, are pro-Islam. There's not a single Islamist party. Yeah, there are about well, five I mean, or that's six true. different parties. I, I, again, I'm not an expert on Israeli politics, but I think that perfectly describes much of Israeli politics. Yeah. Is different Israelis arguing about who has the best claim on the uh, on the Jewish question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 there's there's you're not going to agree. Uh, they're not going to kill each other over it, but they're not going to agree about it. Um and, and you know, we shouldn't forget, I think that, you know, in Europe there are Christian democratic parties. And right. that's what they're called. <laughs> right. We don't have right. that in the United States, but <laughs> And that's and that's a, you know, I'm 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 glad you brought up that example because it's an it's an interesting it it brings us back to this question of the of the nomenclature and how we think about that word islamist. One of the examples that we write about in this book, uh, we have a chapter in the book on Muslim democracies. And in that book, in that chapter, we talk about uh, Indonesia, Turkey and Tunisia. And Tunisia is a really interesting example because it's the only case uh, where of of an of a state that had an uprising in the Arab world in the, in 2010 2011 had a regime change that ultimately developed into a democracy. There was lots of other regime changes in the Middle East and North Africa during that period of time, but they tended to move from one type of authoritarian regime to another. And Tunisia actually had a transition to democracy. And an Islamist actor, the um, party Anakta, played a very, very important role in that transition uh, and has since, in, in operating in a, in a Tunisian democracy, denounced a label as being Islamist. It now calls itself a Muslim political party. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I think, is very much this goal of trying to separate out a sense of public consciousness of recognizing that they they want to advocate on behalf of particular Muslim values, but don't want to be tied in with public stereotypes of Islamist with theocracy. Right. Um, which is certainly that's not the way that we use the term in, in our book, but it's it, it speaks to sort of a sense of where there's public consciousness about this. Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh... Lots of examples are springing to mind in which various American politicians will mobilize Christianity for various purposes, putting the Ten Commandments on the court lawn, you know, that kind of thing, which doesn't really sit well with most Americans because of the separation of church and state. And But they're there. And so we're not so different after all is the conclusion that I would reach um, about Very that. Very good point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, Daniel, we've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate it. Um, We have a a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and it is this. What are you working on now? Right. And um, what I'm working on now is a book project that's tentatively titled Mobilizing the Devout. And this is actually a project I had started prior to working on the many faces of political Islam and then hit the pause button to, to complete this book. But in this project, I actually get at some of the questions that you and I were were talking about or not being covered in this book, which is I, I'm interested in this question of how it is that the average individual, the average religiously devout individual uh, is to what extent their religious practice affects their political participation with a very specific focus mm. on Indonesia. So it's looking at both Muslims and Christians in Indonesia. And in I 
have already done the field work for this project. Um, it involved doing participant observation in four mosques and in four churches in one city in Indonesia, where I observed their worship and non-worship services and activities, and also did an original survey of the eight community, those eight communities, to look at to what extent do are people encountering politics through their religious life, um, and to what extent do those encounters with politics in their religious life shape their their political beings. That's a great. It's a great project because you could essentially do that project almost anywhere. You yeah. could do it in the United States with the you same questions. It, you could do it absolutely anywhere. That's exactly right. And I was I was very much motivated in doing this by um, what I saw as sort of a a shared um, identity, if you will, among people who are who are practicing their their practicing their faith that they come together in community, and that that's something that is shared across any type of religious denomination. But that that focus of coming together in community and, and just having that shared experience in a house of worship is something that we have and we um, don't theorize and think about across religious denominations. Right. We think about the role of churches in Christianity. We think about the role of um, Muslim organizations within Islam. And we think about, of course, the way that Jewish communities are structured among um, in different in different communities in different communities as well. But we don't think about theorizing across those different religious traditions. And you so, need and 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 to theorize it, and to compare in this way, you need common categories. You have yeah. to have them. I mean, I think people yeah. don't understand this, but you really have to have common categories, which is why I liked your study because somebody else could do the same study in the United States, and then you'd have a nice comparative case. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to wish you good luck with that. And I also want to thank you very much for being on the show, Danielle. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.